Hey fam, welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I am your host, Dylan Bowman, here today with ultra running legend, the one and only Jeff Browning is finally here for his first appearance on the show. Jeff will need no introduction. If you listen to this podcast, you obviously know that Jeff is one of the greatest ultra runners of all time, especially one of the best 100 mile racers ever. And at 51 years young, Jeff is still not slowing down, still racing and competing at the highest level, the human embodiment of of trail running longevity. So good to finally have Jeff on the show. Of course, we talk about his rural Midwestern roots. We talk about his relationship with Carl Meltzer. We talk about the evolution of the sport over the past 20 years. We talk about graphic design and building a personal brand. We talk about longevity. We talk about quitting and DNFs. We talk about 200 mile racing and a lot more. There's a ton packed into this 90 minute conversation. We could have gone easily an extra couple of hours. So we'll definitely be doing a round two with Bronco Billy in the near future, but I hope you all enjoy the episode. As usual, the Free Trail Podcast is presented by our friends at Speedland, the premium trail equipment brand from Portland, Oregon, and the makers of the GS Tam, the new trail shoe that is about to take the world by storm. The GS Tam is literally on the manufacturing line right now as we speak. The shoes are being assembled and we are just days away from shipping. Those who have participated in the pre-order for the GS Tam should be receiving their pairs very soon in the near future. So keep an eye out for shipping confirmation via email very soon. For those who haven't ordered, at least please go check out the shoe at runspeedland.com. It is a beautiful product. So much care and attention went into its design and performance. Double BOA fit system, double P-Bax midsoles that are ridiculously durable, Michelin outsole, etc., etc. Thank you so much to Speedland for their steadfast support of the show and of me personally. We really couldn't do it without them. Similarly, the Free Trail Pro community is growing and super vibrant. So come join 650 other trail enthusiasts in the Free Trail Slack group. Use our training plans, get exclusive discounts with our brand partners, get early access to our soon to be dropping merch collection, exclusive content, and a lot more. Membership is only $10 a month or $96 for the year, and there is a free trial. So please do check it out. One final note if you're in the market for a coach, check out Free Trail Experts. MK Sullivan and Hannah Allgood still have some availability, two incredible athletes and coaches who we are proud to partner with. You can find links to Free Trail Pro and Free Trail Experts in the show notes. Thanks so much for being here. Hope you enjoy the show. Jeff Browning, good buddy. Welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Nice to see you. Thanks, brother. Good to be here. It's been a long time coming, man. Like I said to you in our text exchange, you're definitely, if not the most requested guest, you're in the top two or three. So uh, it's a yeah, been a long time coming. I'm glad to find you. I'm honored find, to be on. Yeah, for sure. Glad to finally get you on the show. Uh, maybe maybe first, just uh, fill the audience in about what you were up to this weekend. It seemed like you were doing a an uphill race on your local mountain, it, which is I far was. removed from your wheelhouse is the world's best hundred mile racer, perhaps. So what were you doing <laughs> this weekend? Well, uh, there's a big fundraiser here locally, a big local event at, at Arizona Snowball um, that Catula sponsors. Um, and it's a uphill challenge and it's 
it's got two courses, a short course is like a mile and then a three and a half mile course with like about 2,100 feet of climbing. You just basically, there's two divisions. There's the ski division. So you can, you know, do like a ski mountaineering type of setup. And, um, and then there's like a traction division. So, um, my schemo setups more of a backcountry setup. So it's not very light. So I just, I opted to do the traction this year and jumped in it. Um, it's, it's like, a, it's a, it's a 46 minute suffer fest. Um, cause you go right up a ski run, like multiple pitches. So it's 2,100 feet of climbing yeah. and probably a, mi- a little over a mile, 1.5 maybe. Yeah. And uh, straight up a ski run. And then, and it's a mass start. So you're with the skiers. So Krar was on skis and I was on traction and he and I were like right next to each other on the climb. Um, and then when I passed him, he was in the, he was in the lead yeah. in the ski. Division. I was maybe in like at that point, like ninth in the, in the traction division. So we top out, he's, he's transitioning and getting his skins off. I blow by him and then he blows by me skiing. And then I, as soon as he did, I was like, skied. that looks really fun. To yeah. Go down. Yeah. That's a performance <laughs> enhancer going downhill on skis. Yeah. So, and I love to ski, man. I skied this morning with my son and I ski twice a week this time of year. So cool. Um, at the, so, and I do a little backcountry here and there. I mean, the backcountry here is, can be questionable just because we get so such long windows between storms. Yeah. The backcountry get junky. Yep. Um, so I'll go out a little. I'm starting to meet a few guys who can kind of guide me out. Um, you got to find the locals, man, because nobody tells you yeah. where they're stashed. Well, I was going to ask you, like, how are you settling in to flag? Because, you know, obviously – when you and I met back in the day, you were living in Bend. And then I know you tried out Utah for a bit. You tried Montana. Now you're in yeah, Flagstaff. Yeah. I've been sort of bouncing around myself with our little family. So how's it feel to be settled in Flag? It's good. Like we've, we're, st- we're, you know, we got our kids settled in first and they've got all their friends. And now we're, my wife and I are settling in now. So we had this, th- this uphill challenge, man. There's a big, it starts and finishes at Fremont Bar. It's like the base and, um, it's, it starts at like 5 PM. So, you know, the whole resort crowds moved out and it's all just locals hanging out. It's all the local endurance community. Yeah. In and so it was really fun, you know, for me to be in that scene. I finally have a circle of people. Yeah. And so we all had a table and, you know, I felt like, wow, I'm, I'm like, I was sitting back, like got done racing, changed and people already saved me a table. It yeah. was awesome. I'm like, I felt, I felt like I belong. You're part of so, the community. Yeah, it was good. Amazing. It was really good. Good, man. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time, and I'm really excited to have you on the show, and I have so much that I want to talk about, but I figure first, maybe we start by by talking about your roots, because I'm not sure I've really ever gotten the full story about where Bronco Billy came from. You know, I know you're from uh-huh. sort of rural Missouri, but I wondered, you know, just sort of like how that part of your life has, has sort of shaped the person you are just kind of growing up in the Midwest, far flung from the mountain West where you've sort of at least spent the last couple decades of your life. What, what sort of values were instilled in you in those years in, in Missouri and uh, you know, what's carried over into who you are now? Well, definitely, definitely hard work, man, work ethic. I, I grew up on a 700 acre family farm um, we had livestock and crops, you know, corn, soybeans, and wheat, um, what I'd consider the devil today, but <laughs> that, <laughs> that kind of like monoculture farming. Cause I'm, I'm all about like, 
regenerative agriculture and regenerative ranching, but and supporting those things. But I grew up in that. And one of the things that goes along with that is hard work. You know, I mean, I was I had to paint our farmhouse when I was 12 years old. That was my my dad assigned me that project. I'd never painted anything. So, you know, it took me all summer to paint our house. Yeah. Um, you know, we had to scrape it and be on a ladder all summer, you know, and, you know, 12 year olds, they, we aren't very good workers. So we aren't very efficient at our work. So it took me all summer to, to paint our house. But like, you know, I, I ran a hay crew in high school where I had all my buddies were on my own crew. So, you know, and we put stuff away at night. So because when it wasn't as hot, so and we had to get things in before thunderstorms. So if we had a field full of bales, like we had a trailer and a truck and then we were out like, you know, running, running a truck and trailer at like midnight, you know, when it wasn't hot. Yeah. Um, and then we'd have to put it away in barns, you know, up in the haylofts and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, I, that, and I, I mean, I, I castrated pigs. I like, I I've done it all, man. Like, yeah. you know, I've had my hands pretty dang dirty and, um, um, rode three wheelers and I, I was pretty, pretty awesome riding a wheelie on a three-wheeler um <laughs> i could ride like a quarter mile on a three-wheeler down a road oh my road. goodness man you're lucky to be uh, alive <laughs> i know man we, I, we were crazy i mean and we you know we drove muscle cars in the 80s so i got a 67 mercury cougar with like dual glass packs and a 289 and yeah uh, and so like it was it was like you know i i'm 51 so i i, I graduated from high school in 1990 um, and so the eighties were like, you know, it was 4,700 people in a small farming community, 60 miles east of Kansas city, mm-hmm. um, just out of the Missouri river Valley and, uh, up in the Hills. Um, and that, that's what I grew up doing, man. I was always outside. Um, I grew up with a grandfather who farmed my dad and my grandfather was really probably my biggest outdoor mentor. Mm-hmm. He, he took me on nature hikes like quite often at that point in my life. When I was younger, my dad was always working on the farm and he was running the farm and my grandfather kind of taken a back seat a little bit. And so he had a little more free time and he would take me out on these, a lot of nature hikes all over our, all over our farm. You know, we had a lot of like creeks and stuff like that. And, um, and he really showed me and taught me like, Hey, that's a coyote's den and mm. that's fox tracks and you know deer tracks and um just kind of like you know generally introduced me to appreciate nature mm-hmm. and um and I just could I hate to be an inside like I was always outside I was the kid like as soon as I was home from school I was outside yeah until I was called in you know we had a big dinner bell my mom called it a dinner bell but it was from the old one room schoolhouse that my grandfather had gone to when they closed that thing down, they auctioned off a bunch of stuff. And my parents got the original school bell. Um, and my dad mounted on a big white wood post out our back door. And when it was lunchtime on the farm, my mom would come out and just ring the bell. And that was the lunch bell. <laughs> That's um, like stuff from the movies, man. That's like legitimate farm living. It was dude. I mean, I drove tractors. I mean, I was driving cars by the time I was 12. Like by the time I was 13 or 14, I was sliding like sliding vehicles around corners sideways, like the Dukes of Hazard. you know, yeah. my dad would call the CB and tell my mom, Hey, I need this tool from the shop. I'm at this, you know, we had all these like 40, 80 acre fields all over the place. And some would yeah. be like four or five miles away. And I'd have to drive gravel roads to get there. And I was 13 or 14, but I'd been driving since I could see over the dash. And so he would just say, send Jeff down here with the tool. 
I jump in the truck and that was my opportunity to be the Duke's hazard, man. And I was like, whoa, whoa, I was driving a stick. I already knew how to drive a stick by 13 or 14, you know? Um, it was fun. That's Good amazing. Times. How old are your kids now, Jeff? So my oldest Ben is 20. Yeah. Um, wow. You've Annie, got a 20 year old son. <laughs> 20. Annie's 17 and Abraham's 11. Amazing, dude. So have yeah. you, I'm sure you've obviously recognized the value that that hardworking upbringing has brought into your life. Is there ways in which you've tried to convey that to your children throughout the years? I have, but I, I would say that I probably spoiled them more than I should have just because I grew up in a time when the seventies, we were really farming was really good for the small farmer and the eighties were horrible. Mm. So my junior high, high school years were always with, met with, Nope, we can't afford that. Hmm. And, and so as I've, you know, I had a successful graphic design business and, um, and the coaching business has been really, um, been doing well. And I, I like to give my kids good gifts. So yeah. sometimes my wife gets on me because I'm a little too lenient on that side of things, but I would say that they are good, solid workers. Like my son, you know, has assistant manager position, works full time. He saved a bunch of money. He took a gap year because it was during COVID. He was a senior, mm. senior year of high school was COVID. And, Brutal. And, and what it would have been his freshman year of college. And he, so he took a gap year. He worked full time, put a bunch of money in savings. And now he's doing an online intensive school to become a draftsman. It's like CAD. Mm. So he's working like 55 hours a week right now. So He's understand he understands how to work hard. And um I try to instill that in them. So they do a good job. Yeah. But you you can't you can't replace being on a farm. Yeah. Like where you have to get up, you have to work every Saturday for eight to ten hours. Like even when I was in junior high and high school, like all my buddies were doing something on a Saturday. And I was castrating pigs or we were moving cattle yeah. or, you know, we were, or I was driving a grain truck and during harvest, you know, I was driving the big old sixties, like with manual, ste manual power steering, you know, yeah. no power. Steering. My grandfather called it Armstrong power steering. <laughs> well, I'm sure that you look back fondly on those days and I'm sure your okay. children, you know, pick up that the value of hard work through osmosis, at least, and also from observing your professional athletic career, to what extent do they care about what you do and what you've achieved athletically? Um, they, they, they like, like, well, they've grown up only knowing me running hundred milers. So I ran my first hundred Western States in 02 when my 20 year old was in the womb. Yeah. So three weeks from delivery, we really? didn't know it at the time we were that close. <laughs> he came a little early. Um, and so, uh, we were like pretty surprised, you know, three weeks later, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm a dad. Um, so, but they've all, that's all they've known. So for them, it's normal, I guess that this lifestyle that we, that I let lead is, is, you know, dad running a bunch of ultras every year and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But they've also seen, um, my success in it. And I say the most, the one that's the most probably uh, he's in a little bubble is my youngest because it was in my latter, more successful part of my career. So he expects me to win. Right. Like when I go in to enter a race, he's like, did you win? Yeah. Why didn't you win? If I don't win, he's like, why didn't you win? You yeah. know? So, but it, and you know, they, they see it and they see how hard I work and 
Yeah, know, because you were really a, a late bloomer, too. I mean, you didn't start really getting into trail and ultra running until you were sort of in your early 30s. And then your career took off when you were sort of in your 40s and now into your early 50s. And you know, yeah, no 40s slowing down. really took off. For yeah, sure. yeah. Well, let's get into that in a little bit. One of the things I'd love to also hear you talk about and that I think the audience would really love to hear is your relationship with Carl Meltzer, because I know you guys have known each other obviously for a long time. And long time. I think you're, you're good buddies, or at least you have a lot of mutual respect for one another. So, so maybe tell the story about how you and Carl met and how that you know relationship has evolved. I think we met through Ultraspire because we were both Ultraspire athletes and they did some team things in the early days where we all kind of met up someplace and um, hung out for the weekend. And Carl and I immediately like clicked. Um, he and I, you know, we just, we share similar like adventure and, you know, the, the love of adventure and like, and just chilling, you know what I mean? Like he knows how to chill. I know how to chill. Like, you know, we're not super high strung when it comes to that kind of stuff, but, but willing to do big adventures. And I think, you know, he and I went out once and did like half of the we went and did half of the Zion Traverse on one of those one of those outings together, just the two of us. And that's where we probably the first time we ever like, if I can remember right, I think that's the first time we ever went out and like ran a decent amount together. And then from that point forward, we anytime we could connect and we were, you know, going to be at the same race, you know, if we were going to be at Run Rabbit, you know, we'd ask Fred if we could share a place, you know, yeah. get a condo together. Um, we've met up in Texas at races for like Bandera one year, um, and shared hotel rooms. Um, you know, so we, we've, we've had some good times together and we, we, every time I win a hundred, he always like, <laughs> he, he says good job, but he rubs it a little bit. He turns the screws cause he's got the lead and he's got such a lead. So fill the but, audience in of what you're talking about here. It says the overall hundred mile victory list. And I'd love to know yeah, so where, what the standings are. hundred. Career 100-mile wins, Carl has 47, and I have 27. So I'm second in the world. Okay. I, I, I surpassed Ann Trayson a couple of years ago. She was at, like, she was 22 for yep. her career. And and I didn't even know that stat, but of course Carl does. Carl knows all the stats, right? He's, he's literally like a sports announcer, yeah. you know, that can just pull stuff out of his head. So he's like, he he put it on my radar when I was one away from Ann. Yeah. And he was like, you know, you're about to move into second behind me. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, Ann has 22. And so when I surpassed Ann, then I, it started from that point forward, it was really on my radar. Yeah. Uh, once he put it on my radar. And so now, you know, he, he thinks I, he thinks I've got the potential to be in the thirties for sure. Yeah. But he's in, he's like in another stratosphere, yeah. dude. I mean, he was he was running six hundreds a year in the two thousands. I know, when it was a smaller sport, less competitive. I mean, some of my times at Hard Rock, if I look back right, I think some of my fourth place finishes would have won Hard Rock so many times. Mm -hmm. And when he was winning it, he was running it about that time that I ran for fourth. So you know, performance wise, I'm really close to what he ran as far as his fastest. Um, I can't tell you exact stats, but. But I mean, that just shows you like, you know, when Jurek was winning all his Western states, like, you know, some of those times would barely be in the top 10 now. Yeah. 
to well, put in perspective how fast it is now. Yeah. And I want to get more into how things have changed and progressed during your couple of decades in the sport, but maybe lingering on this topic of Carl Meltzer. I'd love to just like, maybe if there's any examples, anecdotes of competition or conversation between the two of you, because I think the audience would love to just sort of be a fly on the wall in the interaction between you two iconic hundred mile legends of the game. Is there anything that comes to mind, like at a race or even just like a training run, the two of you that you think would be a well, funny he, story? He's, he's always, we've always been like close to each other like in, especially in like that 2012, 2015 range, like we were at run rabbit in the early days and like, he got second, I got third. And, and I was, we were together like the first 35, 40 miles together. And, uh, I remember went back, it was in a different course, but used to come down for fish Creek falls on the road. And we were hauling as a downhill road. It was the early days of ultra and ultra was filming another runner. I can't remember who the runner was, mm. but it was the three of us running and they had a truck and a guy cameraman was hanging on the outside of the truck filming us. And Carl and I were like right next to this guy and just running. Like it was Josh Arthur. And so we're like running right next to him. Right. And this might've been 2013 and we're hammering, man. I looked down and we're running like six thirty pace, yeah. you know, and we're at like mile 20 something of the hundred, you know, and, but the camera's on us. So we're hauling. And, um, and no one's going to let up because the camera's on us. So, but we hammer that into town. Carl and I stay together. I think at that point we lost Josh and then he and I climbed up Emerald mountain at the top of Emerald mountain. He kind of topped out before me and he gave me a wink at the top and took off. And, and that's where he got his gap. I had a bonk. I bonked in that spot a little (laughs) bit. And uh, it was hot that afternoon. It was south facing downhill. Yeah. And I came to that aid station. I just had a rough patch. You know, when you have one of those like four or five mile rough patches, and then if you were with somebody, that's when they gap you. Yep. And so from that point, the rest of the race, I was 20 minutes back the entire race, and I never could make the gap back up. But he knew that I was back there. He had crew and stuff, and they were telling him Browning's like 20 minutes back. Browning's yeah, 20 yeah. So he's running scared for me. I'm trying to catch him. Um, and we had a good laugh afterwards. There's yeah. actually some photos that came out of that because Fred Marmsader was at that race taking photos for Patagonia at the time. Um, well, shout out Speed Goat. It's fun to hear the the stories dude, that you two grizzled vets going after it. You know, it's funny. Man. You know, I'm not sure I've really told this story, at least on the podcast, but you mentioned Run Rabbit. I was there for the inaugural 50, or I'm sorry, the, the inaugural 100 mile race there. That's I, right. I was in the lead through mile 70, and then Carl comes into an aid station right behind me, chugs a Red Bull, trots out before me, and I never saw him again. And it was like yeah. the ultimate textbook learning experience watching the 100 mile master Carl Meltzer pass you at mile 70 of a hundred mile race. It was fantastic. (laughs) But going back a little bit further, you know, I'd love to hear you recount some of the stories from early in your career. Like, you know, you've done 150 ultras at this point, right? I've done, I think 200 at this point. Wow. I mean, I've done, I think like 65 or 70 and I feel like a grizzled veteran and I'm not even halfway to the aggregate total of Bronco (laughs) Billy. So I don't know if there's, from like maybe one of your first two or three races, like are there, is there a moment or an anecdote that you still think about, or you still remember to this day about like what captivated you and sort of kept you in this this community for such a long time? 
I think the biggest one was like in the early days and I was in Bend, Oregon when I started ultra running and um, we had a small little group of, of ultra runners, some older veteran ultra runners at the time who kind of took us under their wing and mentored us, you know, cause there really wasn't anything. I mean, online there was like run 100s.com and, you know, and that was the, it, that was the only resource for ultra running at the time. There was no, you know, there was ultra running magazine and I started subscribing to that and, I started getting my hands on everything I could, but it mainly it was mentorship back then. And that was the cool thing about the community is some grizzled veteran would take you under his wing and say, oh, this is the route we do at Smith Rock that sandwiches in 5,500 feet of climbing in 20 miles, uh-huh. you know? And you'd be like, what? How much climbing? I thought I was doing a lot of climbing, you know? And then all of a sudden these guys show you like, no, this is, no, you go up that. And you're like, what? Oh, okay. Um, and so I think- that was like a really um, big influence on me. I come from like the mountain biking scene and um, was really into the mountain biking scene and climbing scene at prior. And it was casual, you know, I raced a little bit on mountain bikes, but it was more casual. I worked at a bike shop in college, was an early adopter of mountain biking. You know, I started riding in the Ozarks in the mid, you know, the Midwest in college in like 93. And so I moved West in like 97 moved to Denver in 97 and then kept mountain biking, climb, started climbing. And I think what really attracted me to the sport originally was this community because back then I was in Oregon, there was the Oregon ultra series because there wasn't the, all these races there are today. Right. I think there was only 3,300 in the U S at the time. Mm-hmm. So there weren't that many right in the, in the two thousands. And so it was really a more local regional scene like Washington, Oregon, you know, and and we in Northern California. And so we would road trip to those areas and we'd go to races and you just, re- you ran the circuit every year. So yeah. you ran like Ag Lake 50K and then you ran Mac Forest 50K. And then there was all the summer races and like there was a Siskiyou Outback race down in Ashland um, and some of the stuff in Washington. And so that was our scene and you just kept seeing the same people over and over and over, right? And so- it became like this extended family that we'd all meet up at these races and hang out. And I was really attracted to that, like the community piece of it and Mm -hmm. how laid back it was. It reminded me even like more laid back. It was like a combo between climbers and mountain bikers. Ah. And I really liked that scene, right? They liked to chill, but they knew how to adventure. And it was taking this whole idea of like light and fast you know, of the whole idea of climbing and mountain biking and backpacking and kind of like putting it in a blender. Yeah. And like, and what came out was this like super sweet, like light, fast approach to mountains and the climbing part of me and summiting things um, really attracted me, attracted me to it. The other thing was that mountain biking, you're always limited on what trails you go on because wilderness areas you couldn't go into, you couldn't, some technical if a trail was too technical, you couldn't, you couldn't go up it because you can't ride that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. But with climbing or with running, it's like scrambling too, right? You can, it can mix in climbing with it. So if you have some climbing skills and you're comfortable with a little exposure, you can go a lot of cool places and link Mm -hmm. things up. And I think that was like, you know, we used to look at backpacking and go, okay, yeah, I want to do this, you know, 40 mile route in five days. And all of a sudden you could do it in a day. Yeah. And be back for happy hour. You know? <laughs> so it was like kind of a cool, I like that aspect of, of trail yeah. running and ultra. 
That's yeah. what really So at what point did it become more of a competitive outlet for you, Jeff? Because like we were just mentioning, you were somewhat of a late bloomer. And it seems like in the early days, it was just a matter of being part of a community and getting a few finishes and some adventures under your belt. And it wasn't until later that you started to think about it more, at least as like a competitive thing, if not professionally. When did that come about? I definitely came into it from a casual perspective, but I'm a competitive person. I, you know, I, I played all sports in in high school, um, almost went to like a D3 school on a wide receiver scholarship for football, um, was super into strength training and an early adopter of strength training and being in a kind of a gym rat. Um, and, um, and then I got into mountain biking and found this endurance side of me. And that's where the real, you know, I won, I won the 800 meter in my senior year in high school and track but I was so focused on football because it was the mm. 80s Missouri, right? It was football. Like Friday Night Lights is what it was all about, right? Hey, how about the Chiefs, Chiefs last Friday night? night <laughs> what yeah, about, the Chiefs, baby. Yeah, there you go. Oh, man. I was stoked. I what a game. Yeah, I almost forgot that you're a Chiefs guy. We're oh, recording yeah. the day I mean, after the Super Bowl. rolling over in his grave right now, man. <laughs> like he was, he was, my dad was a diehard Chiefs fan mm. my whole life. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, where was I going with this? Um, you know, as far as from a comp- competitive perspective, there's a natural con- competitor in me that I can't turn off. Like mm-hmm. even I'm playing a board game, yeah. you know? And so one of the things that happened was in t- 2002, so I ran my first 100 in 2000. I got into the sport in 2001. I ran Western States in 02. Back then, Montreal Patagonia had a team. And they had like a three level, three tiered team. So like the, you know, the JV JV team was like, you know, I got onto that at, with like a sub 24 at Western States, you know, and, um, and, and so I got a Jersey and like a couple free shoes a year or something. And I started racing and I got fifth at Wasatch in 04. And then when, when I got fourth at Wasatch, that's when I, for me, I started going, huh. I think I can run these hundreds better uh-huh. and faster. I might be able to like actually compete in these. So I really started like focusing my training. I, I, I started picking up books on training, on endurance training. I picked up running the Lydiard way, Arthur Lydiard. Um, I, I picked up, I wrote, read the lower running by Noakes's book. And um, I kind of started digging into that stuff. And I was a graphic designer and I was online all the time. So I was researching stuff online. I, I, I picked up stuff on like, form and cadence and like, uh, chi running in the early days and like, Oh, five and worked on my cadence and my form and just tried to like, make, like turn the screws in little spots to try to make myself better, um, and try to be more intelligent training. And, and I, I got into like a periodization thing with a strength coach in the off season in like Oh, four Oh five and Oh five Oh six. Cause I'd been having some injuries coming from cycling. Mm. You kind of overdevelop your hamstrings compared to your quads, which messes with your knee tracking a little bit. Mm. So I fixed it in the gym in the off season with this personal trainer in bend. And, and that's when I won, I won Bighorn in Oh five. Um, you know, back then the competition wasn't super deep, you know, or anything, but I just showed up. I won. I came back the next year, broke Brandon Zabrowski's course record. And then, um, and then that, from that point on, I was like, man, I can do this, yeah. you know, like I can win hundreds. So I came back in 08, won Bighorn again, um, won 
Arkansas Traveler, um, the inaugural Ozark 100, because I was from Missouri. Um, I remember just, reading uh, your blog about that Ozark race when I was sort of coming into the sport and you were one of my... That's, that's blogs, man. That blogs, was the thing. Man. That was the best, man. I mean, it is funny to hear you describe that you're a sort of the the few years before I even came into the sport where it was really hard to find any information about where races were, et cetera. It was almost like pre-internet, right? Like way before ultra sign up became the catalog of record where you could just scroll endlessly and find innumerable adventures around the American West. And uh, totally. yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's also interesting to hear you maybe talk a little bit more about like the evolution of things professionally. I think, you know, having been at Western States in 2002 and using that as sort of the representation of world-class racing now, I'd love to get sort of a meta commentary from you about the last two decades in the sport. Like what has you excited about this modern era and maybe conversely, what annoys you or what do you miss from those early days? Well, I, the early days, were really cool because it was just super laid back. Like it, it, you could get in any race the week before the race. Like there weren't lotteries. I mean, Western States, Western States was the only lottery. And I mean, when I got in the lottery in 02, it was a 50% chance of getting in. And like, they, they had that, point. remember they had that two time loser policy too. So if you missed on the lottery twice, you were automatic the third year. Third now time. there's people who go to the lottery who've not, who've missed like eight or nine years in a row before they finally get in those poor, exactly. miserable people. <laughs> Keep going. And so that was, that was like really, that was the one cool aspect because you could just kind of show up and there were a lot less races so you saw a lot of the same people at the same races. So the community was smaller. The race scene was smaller. So, you know, it, it was definitely grassroots. And, and I really, that was a cool aspect of the sport. But for me, I, I mean, competition makes you rise to the occasion. Mm -hmm. And so there is a beauty in the evolution of where we've come. I know some old timers will like get annoyed with, with some of that, but but you know what? Every everything changes, and and we have to learn to evolve with it. And I think the cool thing about the sport now is it's we know a lot more. We still don't know everything. We're still learning. That's what's really cool about the sport is we're still we're still like there's so much data that we're like kind of trying this and trying that, and you know high mileage, low mileage, more vert, balance vert. Mm -hmm. You know, like what do we do when we're training for these mountain races, and how do you get better at them? So. Um, for me, I, I, it's really been cool evolution because it's made me have to like, it's made me really have to like fine tune how I train and train more intelligently. And that intelligent training led me to coaching mm -hmm. and which changed my whole career. You know, I was a graphic designer for 20 plus years, yeah. um, had my own business and been for 17 years and then started a coaching business. And now that's my thing. You yeah. know, I do coaching is my full-time thing. I don't even do design work anymore. Mm. Uh, and so it, for me, I'm in it every day. I'm talking about performance. I'm talking about how, how do I help a guy that's 62 years old or a woman that's 55 to like, you know, maybe some people are going to come to me for like, oh, I'm trying to beat the cutoffs. And some people are coming to me to try to, you know, win their age group mm -hmm. um, or, or just try to get better and faster and not throw up all the time or yeah. something, mm -hmm. you know? And so um that everybody's a puzzle. And I think that's, what's cool about this sport is this, we, we're still seeing this growth of like the bell curve still going up, 
Yeah. And it's been fun for me personally, just because it became kind of a professional pursuit. And if it hadn't grown to that point, I wouldn't have the career I have. Today. Mm, that's and I, and I appreciate that. Like I, I'm not, I'm not lost on that fact Yeah, that we have to go here. If there's going to be things like a professional coach, yeah. right. That's going to coach people all over the world remotely. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Right. That I get to tap into a big group of people all over the globe and get to know them really well and get to help them, you know, go after whatever goal is important to them, whether that's just finishing or just running their first 50 K or running their, you know, 20th hundred. Yeah. You know, just running it better. So it's been fun for me and I, it's really been a cool, cool thing to see. And the performances are like sometimes mind blowing, man. They really like, are. I mean, your, your hard rock year is a perfect example, dude. That's why I came up to you after the race. It was like, dude, like any other year, you would be the man. You yeah. had one of the best performances in history. Thank you, dude. But there was one guy in front of you. Yeah, one of the all-time greats. No shame in one that. Hey, by the way, I saw you got off the wait list this year. I'm I'm uh, I'm fourth right now. So hopefully you and you I will both you're, be you're standing next in. to each other. You're I'm planning on it. We're gonna be standing next to each other in Silverton. I'm planning on it. The Fruit Row Podcast is brought to you by the Gnarly Nutrition Baseline Series. You may be wondering, is iron supplementation for you? Iron is essential for oxygen transportation in your body. Endurance athletes, women, and plant-based athletes are particularly vulnerable to iron deficiencies. And Gnarly Nutrition makes hitting your baseline iron needs easy with the Gnarly Baseline Iron Plus. More than your typical iron supplement, Gnarly's Iron Plus has blood-boosting nutrients like vitamin B12, folate and vitamin C for improved iron absorption. Similarly, vitamin D is known for its role in bone health, immune and muscle function, and inflammatory response. But lifestyle factors like decreased sunlight in winter months make vitamin D deficiency a worldwide issue, something I recently learned. Gnarly Baseline D3 is a natural plant-based vitamin, a simple vegan-friendly product that will ensure you're training on a solid foundation. To check out the Iron Plus and the Gnarly Vitamin D3, visit gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off your order. Hey, so before we talk more about your running career, you just mentioned your design career, and I'd love to explore this a little bit. I'm reading Rick Rubin's book right now about creativity. And I'd love to hear sort of like what role creativity has sort of played in your life throughout time as a designer. And I know like your wife is a creative person too. And so maybe like how your creative outlets have augmented or supported your running endeavors. Well, I think the the creative thing is you, it's so hard to me that I don't, it's even hard to like step outside myself and like analyze it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? But I always have always thought outside the box, you know, always have been been quick to try diff all kinds of things. Just try it. Ah, that didn't work. Oh, I'll take a little piece of that. Right. Try something. Try something. Try something. Try something. Even if I I even have the problem sometimes if, you know, the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like I still have the problem of sometimes I'll have things that aren't broken, but I'll go try to fix them still mm. because I'm just, I, I get bored with what I'm doing and I want to try something new. I might want to try new nutrition for a season. And then it like, I have all these problems for a half a season. And then I'm like, go back to what I was doing and everything clears up and I'm fine, you know, or whatever it is. So 
I think the creative process for me, it's always been um, a part of who I am from a young age. My mom was creative and um, I'm a fine artist. Um, and I was always kind of pushed into that role as a, just naturally um, on the side, rainy days. You know, I was, if I wasn't out in the mud, I was drawing at the kitchen table. And my wife and I met in art class in college. Um, so we've both been very creative. She was an intricate part of my graphic design business as a copywriter and editor. Um, and she's always been like kind of my rock to bounce things off of. Mm. And, um, she still helps me with like some of my writing and looking it over and even my social media posts sometimes. Um, definitely she edits them. It's like, Oh, you have a run on sentence. You need to go <laughs> fix that. At some point I just gave her like access to my Instagram so she could go. So if I was on the road and I posted something and she saw there was a problem, she could just go in and edit it and fix the <laughs> punctuation my, real quick. My wife has full access to all those things also. Thank goodness. <laughs> so, you know, like that's always been a part of us. So, you know, in with it, when it comes to the design or, 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 uh, ultra running side of the thing, things I'm, I like trying things. I like thinking of, of how to like fix a problem. I like the puzzle. Yeah. And so for me, like every person that comes to me is a puzzle and I need to figure them out and try to, you know, fine tune whatever's going on with them uniquely. And I think that's, really speaks to the creative process. Um, it keeps me super engaged. I'm always stoked on it and I, I love it. Um, I actually love it more than the design years mm -hmm. because one of the things that happens with graphic design and marketing, because design goes a lot in branding and all that that I was in and user experience, user interface, UI, UX, design for web and, and mobile and all those things. One of the things that always was annoying to me about that industry is one, the technology always changes. So you constantly have to be like on what's new and improved and the new software and whatever, right? And these, and, and the other thing I think that's hard about that, if you're a creative person, especially if you're a creative person who likes to go like search for truth all the time, yeah. um, which that's who I am. I, it's really hard to work for someone who you don't care about their service or their product. Mm. It's really hard. It's a little bit soul sucking to go, okay, I need to go take my brain power and learn about this business that I'll never use. I probably wouldn't support in the first place, but I need a paycheck. Yeah. And so that part of the business, it's great when you have a client that you want to work for, like Foot Zone in Bend, Oregon, yeah. like when he used to own it, like I was helped him brand for 17 years and, and did a bunch of design work for all his branding stuff. And I, I love that because that was my jam, yeah. you know, especially running store that was community driven and, and then also sponsored a bunch of events. It was just so such a fun scene. Right. But then I also had other clients in that town that I was like, I don't even want to like, I don't want to work for them. Yeah. You know? but you need a paycheck and you got to put food on the table. So some of that was a little soul sucking. So I, I definitely don't miss that part of the business. Um, and in, in ultra running, you're just talking to people about running and trying to help them improve their life and be healthier, lose weight, maybe yeah. get stronger longevity. I mean, obviously I, I'm a big proponent of mobility, strength and longevity yeah. and nutrition as supporting your ultra running and and that's because that's been such a big thing for me. And, and I think that's 
one of the things, the key pieces, the other things besides running training is what really helped me to stay in the game so long um, and perform. And so I I love sharing that because it's fun to share. I'm going to have you share some of that here in just a little bit. But I love this idea that there's a certain artistic quality to the coaching relationship too, and that it is a constantly ever evolving tinkering that you're doing in support of something that you actually are passionate about rather than creating a brand icon and typography for some business that you hate or that you wouldn't (laughs) normally support. So aligning your, your activities with your values is obviously a really important thing. So you just mentioned the word longevity and I was listening to a ritual podcast with Garrett McNamara last week. It's a fantastic episode if you haven't listened to it yet. But Garrett McNamara, I sort of view as like a Jeff Browning analog in the surfing community because he sort of achieved notoriety and success at a time when most athletes are starting to wind down. And one of the things he said in the podcast is differentiation has longevity. In other words, carving out your personal niche within a niche, within its sport, within an industry, in this case, surfing in his case, running in yours. And I figured maybe this would be an interesting thing to have you talk about too, of just like cultivating a personal brand, you know, and as somebody who's worked in design and brand and like having the differentiation, and then maybe we'll use this as a launching off point to talk about longevity, but talk about like building a brand for yourself and building a a niche and a differentiation for yourself within the sport. Well, I think once I started having, um, well, continue to have some success in my mid to late forties and going into my fifties, I really started, well, not only I thought about it, but I also had a lot of like people in my cert, like extended circle who started speaking to it too, to me, like putting it in my ear saying, dude, you're like, you're still performing at your age. And you're like, there's not very many people doing that. Like, this is like, you need to be talking about that. And I'd already been thinking about that and saying, okay, you know, one of the things you are trying to figure out when you're an athlete and sponsored, you're trying to say, how do I stay relevant? You know, as I age, and at some point you have to accept that the aging process happens and you're going to slow down. And, and, and how do you evolve your brand into, you know, cause if you're an athlete, if you're a sponsored athlete, you're a brand, whether yeah. you like it or not, you have to accept that you are a brand. And, you know, that was just a natural thing. The way I think about Jeff Browning, the athlete as a brand. And so, because I have to present that brand to all these brands who I want to get sponsored by, right. Or who I want to align with and, and want me to support me. And so I think that was a natural piece, the longevity piece, as it kind of unfolded itself naturally, I kind of embraced that piece and started to talk about it because at some point other people are talking about it. Sure. So I might as well talk about it too. And, um, and I think too, people want to know what, what, what are you doing? Right. Why are you still performing at 51 and, you know, and beating guys that could be your legitimately your son, um, you know, that are 22 or 23 years old and, or 28, mm-hmm. and I'm still a lot older than them, you yeah. know? Um, and I, I think for me, like I just started to look at the strength training and the nutrition, the nutrition was probably the biggest game changer for me. Yeah. You know, everybody uses the word game changer, but, but 
I, I legitimately, if I was going to use one aspect of my life that was that I tweaked in 2000, end of 2015, beginning of 2016, was the nutritional approach. Yeah. To my endurance stuff, and and it was just such. I a remember, big... remember when we went running in Cormier, we were talking about this up at the uh, Refugio Bertone, just above Cormier, and you were telling me how you like lost eight pounds immediately, and obviously had all these other fantastic, um, you know, physical you know, improvements based on this tweak of your diet. Of course, it's also, you know, been met with a lot of controversy as all these, oh, things, yeah. these things are when it comes to diet. It's sort of like religion and politics and things that like you don't bring up in, in dinner totally. parties. Totally, especially in our circle. When you start talking about <laughs> restricting carbohydrate, yeah. it's like the, the zealot, the carbohydrate zealots come out, man. Yeah. So. One of the other things we talked about, and this may be like more relatable and it's certainly something that's, um, you know, front of mind for me right now and relevant in my life is alcohol consumption. Cause you were telling me about how, you know, obviously that was part of your metamorphosis. I mean, alcohol and beer and wine is like a ton of carbohydrates. What is your relationship with alcohol at this point? And especially as an aging athlete, like how has that evolved over time? Well, I used to be a big, big, pretty big, like IPA, pale ale, beer drinker. Um, and and lo I love beer, but um, when I made this shift, I've cut out grains and sugar in my everyday diet. Yeah. I still had, you know, I'm still having carbohydrates. I'm still having fruit and potatoes and stuff like that, but I was in vegetables, but I was cutting out like grain based stuff. So if you go within like the paleo circle, so let's call it paleo just for a loose term. Sure. Right. But we can call it ancestral. We can call it paleo. We can call it whatever. Right. But, but really at the end of the day, we're going for nutrient dense foods that number one, real food, nutrient dense foods. And we're avoiding grains, sugar, and and seed oils in our everyday life. So when I started to have to make those tweaks, I started, I mean, I'm not going to, I quit drinking for a little short window when I first did it. But then, I mean, my wife and I like, we belong to a wine club at a wine bar downtown that we, they have wine tastings once a week. That's our date night. And, um, and I, we like to drink, you know, socially and casually. I don't, I don't go get wasted or anything, but I like to have a couple drinks. Um, and so, you know, naturally in that circle, the kind of the, the direction that you're, you're kind of mentored in, if you get into that kind of scene mm -hmm. is that you drink number one choice is clear liquor. So whether that's tequila or gin or vodka or like hard kombucha now that we have <laughs> or, or white wine before red wine, but wine's fine too, right? Cause yeah. it's fruit based. And not not a like a wheat base or something like that. So that's really what we did is we just became we already drank wine at the time. We just became more of a wine drinker and mixed drinks than we did. So cutting out the the grain based side. alcohols, yeah, yeah. And then the beer became more of a special occasion, you know. Because yeah. I always I even tell my athletes that I coach like ninety ten rule or eighty twenty rule, right? Yeah. 80% of the time you're on the straight and narrow, right? You're like doing the right stuff from the right food list. And, but the rest of the time, like leaves time to have fun. Like, you know, I like pizza Cletta here in town in Flagstaff. Yeah. You know, they have a sourdough crust on their pizza at dark sky. 
and and the brewery has a good pale ale, which I love pale ales. I miss pale ales. Yeah. I don't miss IPAs, but I miss pale ales. <laughs> and so they always have a good pale ale. And so, you know, every once in a while, like once a month or twice a month, we'll take the family and the kids downtown and we'll like go to Dark Sky and we'll have a family dinner, you know, and I'll have a beer or two. And they, my wife will have a beer or two. She likes IPAs and hazy IPAs. And, um, and so like, we just don't sweat it. You yeah. know what I mean? And well, good. But I, I mean, this is, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm more just like interested in the volume of consumption over time because this is very much something that now as a dad, I'm just kind of like trying to get a feel for other people's habits and patterns with consumption, especially people who are high performers and other aspects of their life professionally, athletically and things well, like that. I, I don't do want to try not to drink Monday through or Sunday through Wednesday. So okay. Thursday night's date night. Okay. And then it's Friday, Saturday night. Yeah, so come on. It's weekend. And I just did a long run on Friday usually. So like Friday night, everything's all right, man. Yeah. So like yeah. hard kombucha as soon as I get home from my long run. Um so. cool. Uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to get bogged down in, in the nutrition stuff. I know you, uh, it's really benefited you personally, what you do and all the power to you. And I'm not informed or educated enough to, or really interested to, to sort of, uh, you know, poke holes or, or discuss it really at, at any length. I mean, I, I think you're obviously a, a great example of longevity. And so maybe going back to that, you know, differentiation is longevity, right? And like, you've yeah. obviously differentiated yourself and you are just the human embodiment of performance and longevity over time. And so I'd love to, you mentioned sort of like the mobility and strength. So maybe before we get to that, let's start with the psychological side of things, because I oh, think yeah. it's even more remarkable that you've remained interested in performing at a high level for 20 years in this sport. So maybe if you could talk about what's kept you motivated for such a long period of time, especially as you've grown and matured and become a dad and have all these other professional things going on, what's kept you so interested in trail running? Well, I think that the the training for me, because the I sit at a computer I, or a stand, yeah. I stand at a computer and I have since I was in my 20s, I've been in front of a screen a majority of my week. And it's very unnatural <laughs> and, but it's part of the gig. Right. And so you have to make, you have to go, you have to, you have to make your bed there. Right. And so for me, my lunch or evening or whenever I go run every day, usually lunch during the week, it's my break in the middle of the day. And I made that a lifestyle habit. I carved out, you know, on my Google calendar, since I've been a beta user in Google in 05, I started right. I started putting a blocked out lunch for two hours that no one could put a schedule appointment in there. And I couldn't schedule appointment in there because it's already blocked out. I, I, I carved, I made time to train and that training because of where I lived, Bend or Bozeman or Flagstaff or wherever, it's always been good trail access right out the door. Like, you know, I can be on dirt in seven minutes from my house mm -hmm. out of my neighborhood. And so Growing up in the woods and growing up on a farm, like there's a connection with nature that we just don't have growing up in an urban center. And I think that's very unfortunate for kids today that they don't have that connection. But for me, I need that every day. I need that boom, like just woods, like 
no houses, just can cruise, find my flow every day at lunchtime, let my brain go where it wants to go. Sometimes I listen to podcasts, you know, and when I need a motivator and I'm like, eh, I don't really want to, I'm not, I'm like kind of procrastinating on my training run. I just find a podcast and I go listen to it and cruise aerobic, yeah. you know? But then there's other days where I'm super stoked to be out there and not listen to anything. And I think the training piece for me has always been like what motivated me. I love the the trajectory towards a goal, mm-hmm. right? So like not the goal itself, the goals are important, but they aren't the end all be all. If you're just focusing on the goals, you're going to be let down because you're going to go do it. And then you're going to be depressed for like a month afterwards. Yeah. You know what I mean, but if you can find joy in the process as you're heading toward that goal, I think that's a really important piece of like long-term longevity and long-term stoke, right? Is this like the, it's the process of training. Yeah. And I like to run hard, man. I like to taste pennies. Yeah. Like that's what Rob Carr said on his and his like Instagram before this uphill challenge, you go, <laughs> go taste some pennies. You know, when you taste metal, when you're running at altitude as hard as you freaking can. Yeah. And you're like that slobber coming out of your mouth, but you're still pushing. Like it's therapy, man. That's those are the is. religious experiences. It is. It's so awesome. But We're like built to go hard every once in a while. How you know? about like with being a dad? I mean, you're a father of three. I mean, I have to admit that man, the last six months for me have been really hard. Like, was it, I mean, you've been a self-employed person also for the last 20 years, call it also being a high level athlete and a father of three. It's like, I'm in that boat now, but a father of one, and I can hardly carve out the time. Was there any uh, ever a moment where you sort of lost touch with that love of getting out the door at lunchtime every day? Or do you have any tips? Bro, like I can't sit still. (laughs) I need it. It's my therapy. Okay. I mean, I was that kid who was literally like spazzing all the time, like foaming at the mouth. Like today they would have put me on drugs, you know, in a public school. Yeah. But I was, I just, I was high energy, high energy. My 11 year old is that way. Abraham is like my blood brother when it yeah. comes to that my little one he loves he's my runner he loves to run he likes to go do crazy stuff we just skied this morning like and he just he's got stoke yeah. and like i you can't coach that right they either have it or they don't right when you're a coach and you can't you can have a talented athlete but if they don't have the stoke and the drive then they're never going to perform at their but i'd rather have a mediocre athlete who has stoke right? Who wants to train, wants to do it, work hard. Let's do it. You know? And I think I was that kid. I was always working hard, like Mm. always working hard. Like when we were doing wind sprints in track or, or in, uh, in football, like I'm trying to beat everyone on the, to the line, you know? Um, and so for me, I think that, that it's really easy to like, it's easy for me it's easy for me to get out the door and do all that. Yeah. And, I, and I, I actually kind of forgot what our, what our question was there. Well, we just, just like balancing all of it. And I mean, I'm oh, just right, right. kids. Okay. Yeah. During the early years were the hardest. Yeah. I worked from home. I had little kids in the house. I was trying to train and I was trying to perform. And I sometimes ran at crazy hours. Like, I would go out the door with a headlamp at 11 o'clock at night and go run with my dogs (laughs) 
at 11 to 12.30 and then go to bed. Yeah. Come home, make some food, go to bed, get up in the morning, work, run it, maybe get a short run in at lunch. I mean, even people have asked my wife, like, how did he do it when you had little kids in the house? Yeah. And she's like, I didn't even really notice. He did it at such crazy hours that he was always around. And I, and, and that's because I was self-employed during that time. Like I started my own business in 2001 and have been self-employed ever since. Yeah. So 2001 was when I did my first ultra was Oh one. So that those two years kind of came together. And so I naturally carved out after we had kids, I realized that I needed to be around on the weekends, mm -hmm. like Saturdays and Sundays were family. Okay. So I could squeeze in an hour run or something on the weekend. And maybe one of those days were my rest day. And one day was an hour of maintenance run, but I made Fridays my long run. And in the early days when I was really busy with a graphic design business, I was up at like 5 a.m. I was like first light. I was at the trailhead and I was doing my long run and I was back by lunchtime or one o'clock. And then I would work in the afternoons until five or six yep. on a Friday. And, and that's what I did. And I worked nights during the week to make up for that Friday morning. Yeah. So I would work like eight o'clock to 11 o'clock, two or three nights a week. So basically um, you just made it work. You just didn't have any excuses and made I didn't, it non-negotiable. I, I just carved it out. And, and I actually have to admit as a graphic designer, one of the things that you do is you don't like working during the day is hard during the business day because people are emailing you, calling you. Uh, hey, can you meet for coffee? I need to talk to you about a project. That so interrupts like the creative flow too. Yeah, you need a block of time to work. And so I naturally found that eight o'clock to midnight as after the kids were in bed, I'd hang out with the kids in the evenings, right? I was I never worked out in the evenings when the kids were, you know, there was no, all those like years of like, oh, all the, all everybody's doing the group run at 530 I didn't go to those anymore. Uh, I just trained solo at lunch or early in the morning, one or the other. Usually for me, it was lunch because I was staying up late. Yeah. So I, I trained at lunch and then I was back in front of my computer until about five. And then I would like be with the family until the kids were ready for bed, especially when they're little, they have a very strict bedtime or fairly strict Yeah. until the teens and then they're up till midnight. But, but like during that time at eight o'clock, I was back in my studio. But for me, it was cool time because- I was like tunes on jamming, you know, yeah, working yeah. on a design project, um, you know? And so like, it was a cool time for me. Like I liked those three or four hour blocks every week. <laughs> so it was easy to justify taking off on a Friday Yeah, okay. to go do a big adventure. And then I just mixed in training. I never did back-to-back -back hard runs during that time anyway. Um, I, I mixed my training in throughout the week and I might do a double somewhere else yeah. during the week or one other longish run, but I, I, I kind of, I would get injured back then coming from cycling and I just didn't have the base in those early yeah. years when my kids were young. So I, I couldn't handle that kind of training anyway. So, well, that's cool. And it's in inspiring. And I'm now newly committed to my own training after achieving maybe my career worst fitness level over the last <laughs> couple of months. So thank you for the inspiration. It's the first year is really hard. That's what even people have told the me. The first yeah. four years, because yeah. they're so hands-on, man. Yeah. The kids at that age, you you just you you know you they're like when they're two or three, they'll run right off a cliff and yeah. not even know it. But you're like <laughs> you've got to be on them. 
like their shadow. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It is. So it it's really fun. Yeah. Never ending source of entertainment and joy and love, obviously. And I just need, now to, it's way I just need now. to figure like, my, so. my patterns out, you know, to make sure that I am carving out the time necessary to go have that personal alone time out in the woods that we all know is so magical. The Free Trail Podcast is brought to you by Best Day Brewing. Dry January is over, but your boy is staying disciplined with his alcohol consumption or lack thereof. Not exaggerating, this is one of the biggest focuses of my life right now to reduce my overall alcohol intake as a dad, as an athlete, as a small business owner. Every day is just filled to the brim with important responsibilities that deserve and require my full attention. And I have noticed that I just do not operate with the same focus or with the same energy when I'm drinking, even just one or two nights a week. I have to say also my mood and attitude are so much worse when I'm on the booze also. As such, I've been making a huge effort to reduce my consumption and my goodness, do I feel so much better. And that's where Best Day Brewing comes in. I can still enjoy the ritual of a cold beer without the alcohol that so compromises my performance both on and off the trails. Best Day is brewed for doers like you and me. I'm sure there are many listeners who find themselves in the same position as me. You don't have to fully abstain, but let's hold each other accountable to reduce our alcohol intake in 2023. Visit bestdaybrewing.com and enjoy their selection of delicious craft brews and have your best day yet. Bestdaybrewing.com. Tell them Free Trail sent you. Jeff, I'd love to also hear you talk about quitting. Because I think one of the things that I really admire about you is that in the course of 150 or 200 ultra races at this point, you think you've only dropped out maybe twice in your career. I have two DNFs. And I think it was like not until your 15th year in the sport that you had your first DNF. I think you rolled your I ankle did. at UTMB, I recall. I did. So talk about that a little bit, just sort of like to what you attribute your remarkable astronomical success rate of just getting to the finish line, let alone how consistent and successful you've been. Well, I mean, the, in the early days, I created this mindset, just my own personal, like deal with myself. And that was, you're taking time away from your kids and your wife to like go spend 15, 20 hours a week chasing this thing that you weren't getting, aren't getting paid for, right? Mm -hmm. At the time, wasn't getting any money, right? Some free shoes and a jersey, right? But that's it back then. And, and I was just chasing this kind of like, I was chasing this passionate thing that I was crazy about. And my wife was kept reminding me like, it's a freaking hobby, dude, like chill out. And I couldn't, I couldn't shut it off. And so so I made this deal with myself that said, okay, you're only out to f is besides a, not making a cutoff, yeah, obviously. Right. Was, but that wasn't an issue in the early days. It, it was injury or life-threatening. Yeah. There's only two outs, injury, life-threatening. You don't get to drop. Otherwise buck up and figure it out. Like, cause you took time. And the other thing as a dad, as a, you know, younger, you know, at the time, younger kids in the house, I, I started making the, these little conversations with myself saying, what does that teach your kids? So when it gets hard, you just quit. Like what it kind of lesson is that 
just because it isn't going exactly how I thought it was going to go, or I'm not performing at the the level I thought I would perform at. Because that's the thing that's probably the most annoying about elites in my book is that everyone just drops, you know? And I hate that. Like, because for me, it was like, what am I teaching my kids? Oh, I just drop. Now I understand some we're getting paid these days. And like, sometimes it's like, well, I wasn't performing today. So I'd, I'd rather just save my legs for a different race. Right. So that makes sense. I mean, there is some argument there to be had. Right. Um, uh, and I, and I would argue that I kind of went there with Western States in 2021, um, you know, where I, I blew my quads up, but I was also worried about rhabdo, you know, honestly, because yeah. my quads were so tender. I'd never experienced that before. And so there was a little bit of that back, that message in the back of my head saying, you know, this could be slightly an injury. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to ruin your career either. Um, And so, because your kidneys can't handle, your liver is really resilient. Your kidneys are not, right? So like, um, and so like, I just, I just, you know, those are my only two drops because of that kind of packed with myself. Mm -hmm. I just, I couldn't, I just didn't want to, to be a bad example to my kids. I mean, it's amazing that in 150 or 200 ultras, you've only dropped out twice. And yeah, I mean, it was UTMB in 15 or 16, I think where you rolled your ankle and then Western States in 2021, two of the biggest stages in the sport, unfortunate places to have your DNS, but man, I mean, it's, it's, it is, does set a good example, not only for your kids, but for people like me and for the generation behind me too, of just like seeing Jeff Browning who can still compete into his fifties and who doesn't give himself any excuse to just drop out because he's having a bad day, which you almost never have anyway. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I figured that piece out, man. Yeah, the puzzle yeah. piece. Yeah. I kind of know what to do. You're a freaking tactician, bro. So <laughs> going back to this longevity piece, we talked about the mental side, the physical side. I'd love to have you just preach about a little bit. And specifically, you know, you mentioned tasting pennies. You, t- you mentioned mobility, you mentioned strength training. So if you can tie those three ingredients into a special formula and like a two or three minute response to just sort of give your personal routine on intensity, strength training, mobility, and the, you know, how, what benefit you've seen in terms of your own personal longevity. Well, mobility is a huge one. I think you have to start with mobility because movement matters. Like your movement patterns need to be really, really good because if they aren't good, then your strength training is going to suck because you're going to be, you're going to be, um, actually exacerbating bad movement patterns with, with weights. So you, you can't go there, right? So you have to, you have to assess your movements first to make sure, can you, you know, can you squat and you have enough like ankle flexion to like, you know, get your butt back and drive your butt back and your, 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 you know, make sure your, your big toes are pointed straight ahead, like headlights and they aren't one foot's not going out to the side when you do it, or you're rolling an ankle so you can get ankle flexion to like make up for a bad movement pattern. There's all these little things like knees over toes guy. Like that's a really good example of like, we should all be looking at him and what some of his moves, like incorporating those things. And so like, Dude, so he's, a wizard. he's a wizard. He's a wizard. People should follow him on Instagram. He's got a a remarkable way of articulating some of his moves. Yeah. He's got a beautiful way of articulating the benefit of all these little subtle exercises that he does. Keep going on, keep going on mobility, intensity, strength training, mobility first, 
then strength, because strength is going to help you, especially as you age, because we naturally lose muscle mass after the age of 35, about a pound a year. So if you're not replacing it or you're not, all we're trying to do is maintain our muscle mass. Not because I haven't got any bigger. I lift, you know, twice a week with, with weights and I do two days a week of a, a body weight, more mobility type stuff and, and kind of some daily mobility moves. But like those, those things are just keep maintaining my current muscle mass. Mm-hmm. So I don't just lose it. So I need good movement patterns. I need to be strong. I need to be powerful. Those two pieces kind of go hand in hand, mobility and strength. Those two have to go together, but mobility, I would say, is the foundation because you need those good movement patterns. Then we can bring on speed because then speed, then you can handle the speed. You don't have bad movement patterns, so you're not overstriding. You're not like one side you're pushing off of harder than the other. Now, we all have imbalances. We all have weak sides. That's natural. I do too. And I st- and I have little intricacies and unique things that I'm constantly fighting and having to extra foam roll or go go to a masseuse for or whatever, ART or get a needling, you know, from time to time. But if we're addressing those three key pieces, you do have to have that big aerobic base, right? To be able to handle speed. So you can't handle speed without your big aerobic base, but you also can't handle speed without good movement patterns. Yeah. So when you have all those things together, as you age, you come into your older time, like I am now there. I was an early adopter of strength training was kind of into muscle and fitness and bodybuilding in the eighties and just following it. That was my introduction to like protein and high protein and, and, and that kind of stuff to build muscle and how to build muscle. And, and one of the things that I think that came out of all that was that if you can keep your muscle mass when you're in your twenties and thirties, you, and you can maintain that with strength training into your fifties and sixties, your physique won't change a lot. Mm. Like you're going to get wrinkly, right? Because that's natural, right? You lose some, your collagen and that kind of stuff. And you're going to get this, the typical, like, you know, lines and crow's feet in your eyes and all the other things goes along with aging. But, but from a muscle mass perspective, and a powers perspective and how strong I am. Yeah. I'm still as strong as I was when I'm, I'm stronger now than I was at 35. Yeah. And I better, I would argue better movement patterns than I did at 35. And you look amazing still, man. Like you look the exact same when I met you way back in the day. Dude. I feel like well, I you look get close enough. I'm there's diff- a lot more white yeah. and there's a lot more wrinkles, but, but I mean, overall, I still have the good physique, right? I still have muscular. Yeah. I haven't lost my muscle. I'm not getting skinny fat. Um, that you see a lot of runners in their 50s and 60s and even 40s, they start to lose their muscle mass because they don't have a routine to maintain what yeah. they're natural. Yeah. And that's what we need. We have to have that. I think the crazy thing about endurance sports is we've been really, really all endurance sports have been slow to adopt strength training practices. Every other pro sport has, they, they embrace weights. Mm-hmm. We're all, we have this weird thing where we're like, I don't want to get bigger, you know, or I don't, or I should just take that time to go run. And it's like, well, it, it doesn't take that much time. Yeah. An hour, an hour a week total. I have two 30 minute sessions. I do a week. Yeah. And then I do some other like mobility and body weight stuff, like pull-ups, push-ups, core, and just more mobility, like air squats, side lunges, keeping good movement patterns, knees over toes, you know, lunges, that yep. kind of stuff. 
Amazing. Well, you know, thanks again for the knowledge and the insight. And I think there's a lot of people who obviously look up to you for what you've been able to do into your, you know, late forties now into your fifties. And I certainly am one of those people who now I'm, I'll be turning 37 next month. And I want to basically implement the Jeff Browning protocol so that when I'm 51, I'm looking good and still running at uh, the front of a lot of these races around the country and around the world. Jeff, I'd love to hear you talk also about your much anticipated move beyond the hundred mile distance. Of course, <laughs> you've been well known as the hundred mile master, at least over the course of my time as a participant in the sport. And I think everybody was looking forward to seeing you test out these new 200 mile races. Of course you won, smashed it at the, the Moab 240, bringing the trademark Jeff Browning consistency and success up even longer distance. So maybe uh, tell us, if was there anything about that, that, that maybe surprised you that was harder, more challenging or different than you expected? Yeah. It was, it's long, man. <laughs> it's a long way to run, dude. Um, I think the biggest thing was that, that any little tiny mistakes that you make on day, like the first 24 hours can kind of really haunt you the last 24 hours yeah. of the event. So like, you know, little things like, you know, I had like a heat rash because of a sock, sock fabric choice. Right. And so that was like a bad didn't quite work out, you know? And so like I had heat blisters, you know, and I had to deal with those and I don't normally have to deal with any foot problems. Like I wear the same pair of socks, same pair of shoes for all of hard rock, you know, and yeah. then, and I just deal with it. Right. And you might have a one little blister at the end, maybe, yeah. you know, but my feet are pretty seasoned at this point. So I think that piece and the, the sleep deprivation piece was really hard because once you get into day two, there's such a, like, like my, 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 my execution of nutrition was affected by my sleep deprivation mm. mind, you know, like I couldn't remember last time I even took a salt tab, you know, like yeah. when I needed to take one with my drink rate, you know, I had this little system with drink rate and cause I wanted it to be so much sodium per liter for me. Right. I've been tested in my sodium sweat rate and I have all these like numbers that I stick to. And I couldn't literally stick to it because your short-term memory, literally when you're that fatigued is out the window. Mm -hmm. So you can't remember like, was that 15 minutes ago? Or was that like two hours ago? Yeah. You know? And so I think the sleep deprivation factor was hard. That was very, I knew it was going to be a factor, but I didn't realize it was going to be that big of a factor. I think the other one is, is if you have little, it made me want to work on my foot strength and foot mobility more afterwards because I had a little bit of like a metatarsal head bruise type yep. metatarsalgia basically yep. of my right foot. And I was really tender. Like it was like, you know, nine out of 10 on pain factor, the last like downhill on porcupine rim. Yeah. I remember at one point I looked at Derek Lytle who was pacing me and I was like, dude, how long far do we have to go? And he, and I, he was like seven miles. Oh my God. <laughs> It was like the longest seven miles of my life. I know that trail too. That's an iconic trail in Moab. It is. <laughs> it is so hard because there's so much like sandstone. You're on like basically concrete, you yeah. know? And my foot was just so tender and I was near tears and like, it was hard. It was really hard. And so, you know, afterwards, my wife, my wife was like, I don't think these things are good for you. Yeah. And 
um, just looking at me, you know, what I look like. And and I think th- those were like the biggest surprises for me. And, and it also made me want to figure them out. Yeah. You know, my natural propensity of like trying to fix the puzzle. Yeah. And, I, and so it made me, it was kind of cool because it took me to another level on my nutritional side of things of like my protocol of what I do from a tactical perspective. It, it really made me, I went into a deep dive af- in my recovery time after Moab into f- like a whole nother level of like how I approach drink rate per hour, sodium per liter, like all these little pieces that I tweaked because of that experience. Yeah. And I just kept doing hundreds. I would have never figured that out. Huh. Okay. So that was a big one for me. Like the nutritional side of things got even tweaked more. Yeah. Um, and, and it really helped. And it helped me from a coaching perspective. Cause now the way I coach it is way more like unique and tactical for the individual. Yeah. Versus just kind of general recommendations. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I'm excited to see you continue to tinker with that. <laughs> maybe someday I'll entertain jumping up in, in distance, but maybe I'll wait till I'm 51 also. So <laughs> it definitely hurts, bro. Hey man, I could go absolutely forever with you and I really would like to do a round two. I know we have to start winding down now because I'd love to go deeper on all this training and racing stuff, but Maybe just quickly tell us what you have coming up um, in 2023, and then we'll close with a couple more philosophical questions. Um, 2023, uh, I'm doing, well, uh, my wife put this in my head. Um, I think it was tactical because she didn't want me to do another 200 this year. <laughs> so she 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 said, um, you know, you, you turn 52 this year and you have, uh, you have 4,600 mile finishes. She goes, why don't you try to equal your age in hundred mile finishes? Oh my goodness. That means you got to do so six. She, that means I got to do six hundreds this year. So I'm in hard rock. So I naturally started looking at what's around hard rock and, and the old Rocky mountain slam, which has kind of fallen by the wayside. There's no official like awesome dude. Awesome. But I'm doing Bighorn, hard rock, Wasatch bear. I'm doing the new Sedona Canyons 125 at Cocodona. Okay. So the last 125 of the course, that's a new event this year they added. So I'm doing that in May. And then I just did Coldwater 100 in January. So I just have five more hundreds to do and I can equal it by the end of the season. Um, and, I, and I just ran a 50K last weekend or two weekends ago. And then, I, and then I'm, I'm going to do a 50 miler next month down just local stuff, Aravipa stuff, just for training and fun. You're such um, a savage, man. Unbelievable. <laughs> I, I have your ultra sign up pulled up here. So since June of last year, you did the Scout Mountains 100. You did the Hard Rock 100, Moab 240, Desert Solstice. In between those, I think you did the Wonderland Trail. <laughs> then you did the Coldwater Rumble. And now you got five more hundreds coming up this year. I don't know how you do it, bro. You're such an inspiration. It's amazing. Well, I don't train high miles. <laughs> yeah, you know, we'll get I, into that on the next podcast. Because I yeah, that'll, that, that'll, that'll open up a, a, another totally rich conversation. I'm sure there's a lot of people who would love to hear about you know training volume and your philosophy behind that. But I have a couple fun questions that I like to ask people that are maybe, you know, more philosophical and deeper, more revealing of other things that you may be thinking about. Number one is if there's what's, who's one person who you really admire right now, living or dead, I'm looking over your shoulder at Steve Prefontaine. Well, but, it's gotta be pre. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
I mean, Prefontaine was like, I just liked his tenacity, mm-hmm. you know, like he, he showed up to work every time, like his whole time, four years at university of Oregon, he never missed a workout. Yeah. Like let that soak in. There's a lot of prima donnas today in pro sports, right. You know, um, I think, uh, what's his name from the Sixers who said practice Iverson. Uh, yeah. Right. Like <laughs> that's a good example, right? He was like, well, we're talking about practice. About well, practice? he showed up to practice dude. Yeah. Every time he worked hard, you know? And I think that, I think he's always going to be iconic because he was taken too early. Right. Yep. Um, so he's, he's a big one for me personally. Um, he's always been kind of like iconic in, in that, you know, in that endurance world. Yep. Um, I would have liked to seen what he, what, if he was old and what he was doing today. Yeah, man. You know? No doubt he'd be ripping uh 200 mile races. That's for sure. Exactly. Yeah. No, but I think you're right. I mean, I think that's one of the things that people really admire about guys like you and like, you know, Zach Miller and stuff is that it's like, it is that blue collar mentality of put the work in and then yep. race hard, no excuses. Let's brawl. Leave it on the course. Exactly. Amazing. Final question for you, Jeff. What's one sort of semi-profound truth you've learned about yourself or life in general through running ultramarathons? I I think that that one of the things with ultras that I think is pretty profound is that we're that or I guess what I love about the sport, I should say, is you can't just jump off the couch. Yeah. You have to show up. You have to do the work or you will not make it to the finish line. When, especially when we're talking about hundred milers, right. Or beyond, you have to do the work. You can't just show up. You, you know, they can't just do jump couch to 5k, right. It, like there is no couch to hundred. Yeah. And because you won't make it one, you'll probably put yourself in some kind of health risk if you did that. Right. Whether that's rhabdo or dehydration and hyponatremia or hypernatremia or however you want to cut it, you know? So I think, I think that's probably one of the things that I love about this sport is that it takes consistency and hard work and it pays consistency and hard work in a lot of dividends. Yeah. It just keeps paying it too. Cause if you're consistent, right. That's why I keep, I tell athletes all the time. I one work, any one workout doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's the cons- consistency is the king of it all. Yeah. Right. You just show up and put in the work, show up. Even if it's a day where you're like, eh, I don't feel like it. Well, go run easy. Yeah. Go run zone one, take yeah. some hype breaks, listen to a podcast. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Listen to the free trail podcast, right? Please. And, <laughs> and, and right. And just like go cruise and check the box, yeah. right? You just show up and do the work every day. And, oh, and then pretty soon you're tw- like me, 23 years into the sport. And I've trained consistently week in, week out. Even in my off season, I even go into periodization phases. I never take time off. Yeah. Like, I take phases where I do other things. Yeah. I might ski more. I might bike more. I might lift weights more. I might only run like three days a week for an hour or less. Yeah. Right. For a phase, but I still am building that, that aerobic base blocks. Yeah. Always working on aerobic, aerobic base. 
And then the other stuff's periodization phases mixed in, whether it's strength, whether it's heavier strength sometimes, whether it's lighter strength, whether it's speed work or whatever, right? It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, consistency is king. Yeah. Do the work. Look at this. We Dude. brought it, we brought it full circle. The first uh, comment work or ethic. question was, yeah, growing up on the farm in Missouri, working hard. And now that's one. But I think you also have to bolster a mindset too, right? I, th- yeah. I think one thing that's really important in this sport is it's so your mind game is just as important as your training. Yeah. It's part of, it's actually one of the physiologies you have to train, yeah. you know? Because there's so many very talented runners, but the but their head gets in the way. Yeah, so right? true, isn't it? And it derails you. Yeah. And so I think that's another one is staying in that positive place, knowing that I'll leave you with this. One last little thing that I like to tell people that I'm teaching the mindset side of things. Yeah. Every we have like something like sixty thousand thoughts a day. Okay. It, for every thought, think of every thought you have as a seed that wants to germinate and Mm -hmm. sprout okay now we have negative and positive thoughts all the time now your time is water so if you spend time on that thought then you're going to water it and you're going to sprout it and it's going to become a plant so we have the negative ones that are going to be like these gnarly i like to imagine them as like gnarly weeds with like thorns and thistles and like they're gonna grab you like a vine and like choke you and pull you down okay and then there's the like cool flowering fruitful plants they're the positive ones so when you have those thoughts they're both there you run a hundred miler you're gonna experience both seeds trying to germinate but which one are you gonna spend time on in water if you're gonna water those then you're going to, it's going to drag you down and choke you. And you're going to probably drop at the next aid station or the next aid station. Right. But if you can say, I recognize you, but I'm not going to water you because it's normal to have both. You're in la la land. If you think you're going to have only positive thoughts for the whole race, right. You're going to have a low spot and you're going to have a negative thought. And if you're going to have that, just don't water it. Don't give it time. Say, I recognize you but I ain't going to give you any time, no water. I'm going to drown. I'm going to like, I'm going to starve you out and I'm going to water something else. And then you got to find how do I water that other thing? Yeah. Sometimes it's looking around. I pay to do this. Look how beautiful it is here. Sometimes it's giving yourself a pep talk literally out loud. I've done that at Western States in the middle of the race for the top 10, like pushing, pushing the last 60 K and you want everything in you saying, God, let's just slow down, man. Let's just (laughs) slow down. We're going too fast. And, um, and, and you have to say, no, come on, Jeff, you can do this. Come on. You know? So whatever those tools are that you have to develop over time to help you water that positive thought and make it flower. That's what you want. I love it, man. What a perfect metaphor. What perfect visualization too, or yeah, just like a, a great articulation of, or metaphor for, yeah, the where we place our attention and what manifests as a result. So, yeah. Jeff, you're an absolute legend, man. So great to have you on the show. We got to do it again. Yeah, thanks, bud.
There you have it, folks. The great Jeff Browning, Bronco Billy. What a fun conversation. So great to finally have Jeff on the show and go long form with him. We could have easily gone several hours, so we'll definitely get him back for round two in the near future. Free Trail Pro members, hop in the Slack. Let me know your thoughts on the episode. Let's keep the conversation going. For those interested in membership, we would love to have you. The Free Trail Pro community is the single thing I am proudest of in this whole endeavor. I've made so many friends and I'm endlessly inspired by the folks I have met as a result of starting this little brand, little community, little media entity a couple of years ago. We've had our first ever in-person free trail meetup in Marin on Sunday, which was just amazing. Made me feel so, so good. Visit the link in the show notes to sign up and join the team. A big thank you to our sponsors, of course, Speedland, runspeedland.com, use code freetrail10 for 10% off the GS TAM. Gnarly Nutrition, gonarly.com, use code freetrail15 for 15% off these great nutrition products. Best Best Brewing, bestdaybrewing.com. Use code FREETRAIL20 for 20% off these delicious non-alcoholic brews. If you need some guidance in your trail journey, please do check out Free Trail Experts, where we have enlisted some great coaches and specialists to help make your experience in the sport even more fun, enjoyable, and successful. There is a link to the Free Trail Experts in the show notes as well. That's it for now. Thank you so much for listening. Love you dearly. Bye-bye.